Crossfire. We're talking to John Stewart, who was just lecturing us on our moral inferiority. John, you're bumming us out. Tell us, what do you think of the Bill O'Reilly vibrator story? No, oh, I'm sorry. I don't. I'm here to, to confront you because we need help from the media, and they're hurting us. I made a special effort to come on the show today because I have mentioned uh, this show as being uh, uh, bad. <laughs> it's not so much that it's bad as it's hurting America. <laughs> so I, I wanted to but come here today let me, and say... Wait, wait, I just, let me... Here, here, here's just one, what I wanted to tell you guys. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> stop, 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 stop hurting America. But anyway, I guess just to, uh, just to begin, um, the thing that's been on my mind this afternoon uh, is this uh, Bernie Sanders endorsement in Canada's election, which follows a Hillary Clinton endorsement of Justin Trudeau this morning and an Obama endorsement of Justin Trudeau uh, yesterday. You know, the Bernie endorsement I was obviously pleased about, but it's funny now that it's just clearly becoming a convention that like heavy hitting U.S. politicians are just going to weigh in on Canadian elections. And I just want to say to Pete Buttigieg, who has not uh, broken his silence on the Canadian election, uh, Pete, we need your voice. Uh, you know, a lot of ridings are hanging on the, uh, the coveted Buttigieg endorsement. Um, you know, it's time to time to use your voice to elevate others. Now, was Obama sort of allowed to start doing this or, or did, it, did it seem like it was acceptable for him to start doing this because he wasn't in office anymore? He was like a private citizen and therefore he could do it? I think that's part of it. And I think Obama, you know, he has had this kind of Jupiterian post-presidency where he just hangs out, you know, up on Mount Olympus and, you know, only comes down to, you know, intervene in politics and be with the mere mortals kind of when he has to. So and I feel like- podcast um, with Bruce Springsteen too. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that he spent a lot of his time uh, doing. Will and I have actually listened to that podcast. Oh, God. Heard it? No. I tried to listen to it, and I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't get through more than 10 minutes of it. Yeah, it's, it's really, really, uh, it's really, really boring. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, Obama has, you know, he spent a lot of time, you know, he's very visible, obviously, but he's very visible as a kind of a cultural influencer, um, and I feel like he weighs in on politics, uh, you know, not uh, not super often. And so, uh, you know, his endorsement, I think you're right, Will, in, in 2019, his endorsement of Trudeau um, very much was kind of, you know, under the auspice. It was almost apolitical in some ways. I mean, it's like an apolitical political endorsement um, from a guy who was like, hey, my friend's a cool guy. You should vote for him. But I think in retrospect, you know, now two years later, what you can see is that Obama really kicked open the door to something else. And now, uh, you know, as pleased as I am about the Bernie uh, endorsement of the NDP, uh, I mean, really, you know, th this is starting to look a lot like the Nina Turner race uh, from, a, from a few weeks ago, where, you know, it's just now a proxy for, you know, conflicts within the kind of Democratic Party coalition. I mean, there's a thing, I think it started when Donald Trump started calling himself Mr. Brexit in the summer of 2016 and saying that he had like predicted this and that somehow there are all these international waves that we can, you know, we can see across, uh, across country lines. So that whatever happens in the UK will automatically happen in the US. I guess US. Trump also endorsed Netanyahu when he was president, <laughs> yes, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, but that, that was when he was president. I have to say, somebody made a joke about uh, Donald Trump 
endorsing Maxime Bernier, who, for those who don't know, is the uh, leader of the far right uh, People's Party of Canada, former uh, former uh, Tory cabinet minister who went on and started his own party, which uh, I have to say I'm quite anxious is going to make some gains uh, on Monday. I hope I'm wrong about that. But, you know, somebody uh, somebody made a joke about that. And I was like, aha, yeah, right. Right. Trump endorsement. And now I'm kind of thinking that by the time we finish recording this, that may actually happen. So uh, I hope again, I hope I'm wrong. Depends only if he, I, I don't think Donald Trump knows what's even happening in Canada right now. I get his like daily tweet digest and it seems very, very focused on the inner workings of Mar-a-Lago at the moment. Wait, so uh, Donald Trump's daily tweet digest. What is what is that? Uh, he, How can I sign up? Uh, <laughs> I believe you sign up for official Trump alerts and usually they are written in this. They literally look like his old Twitter feed. I'm trying to find one. The last one just is a bunch of in case you missed it, which is funny, but you know, they literally here's one. It has this little, you know, his dumb face on it. If we didn't have rhinos, the Republican party would totally dominate politics. The good news is there are far less than there were four years ago. It is a dying breed, but nevertheless, and unfortunately they still exist. It's all like this. Is this the same as those statements that he sometimes releases, those from the desk of President Donald Trump, like press releases? Yes, I think so. They killed his his news blog, which they were trying to turn into whatever a Twitter competitor. But still, I guess because he just gets so uh, revved up on Diet Cokes, uh, he <laughs> I guess they have to like give him some outlet. Although some days he sends like. 20 of them. And then other times it's clearly just like Stephen Miller, uh, just going off on stuff. Um, <laughs> but they're, they are, you know, the big lie is the presidential election of 2020. When the fake news media uses that term, always remember that this was the election that is destroying our country, both inside and out. So if you miss his sort of quasi grammatical ravings, uh, yeah, you can sign up for them. I, I mean, I think I was signed up for them by presumably a troll of some sort. But now <laughs> I look forward to it every day. <laughs> you know, it's funny listening to that. I mean, I don't I don't follow Trump's statements all that religiously. I mean, I see them, you know, when they when somebody retweets them into my feed, but I do follow Frank Stallone on Instagram. And <laughs> like the cadence of his posts is so close to the cadence of Donald Trump's post. I'm not sure to what extent he is influenced by Trump, but like to what extent Trump's particular prose style has changed Frank Stallone and to what extent Trump is is merely a vessel for a, a free flowing ambient prose style that's out there in the right wing blogosphere. <laughs> I've wondered about this because I think there is like a particular vernacular of like older northeastern white men who grew up before the internet, so they have not they never had to write until like maybe <laughs> ten years ago, and now are trying to adopt some form of online culture, but they just always like speak in this kind of like clipped. Uh, way that I think is supposed to make them seem tough, but usually just makes them seem really dumb. You see the same thing among uh, certain older liberals as well, where, you know, maybe they're a little, they're a little switched on to kind of online etiquette and sort of, you know, the, the, a particular kind of vernacular style of tweeting perhaps, but they're always like 10 years behind, uh, you know, where we are now. So it's always like you're, you're getting tweets that are, you know, reminiscent of like 2010 or 2011. And they're just like always a little bit off in a way that's kind of hard to put your finger on. I think it's because there are always like these guys who worked at 
small town newspapers who were like they're like Dave Barry guys or something, but they're just <laughs> imitating that style. So they were like getting the secondhand version of like what being funny sounds like, but yeah, never quite. Yeah. Yeah. There's that kind of like smug, like uh, know it all (laughs) tone to it, but it's just a little bit off. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. People who love Bill Maher's new rules every week. Yeah. So I suppose we should officially get things underway here. You are, of course, listening to the Michael and Us podcast. I'm Luke Savage. With me, as always, I'm Will Sloan, and I plan to take it very easy on this episode. I'll be slacking off. I'll be interjecting <laughs> occasionally. But this is a vacation week for me, folks, because we have a special guest on the show. That's right. Uh, yeah, the slacker <laughs> uprising is, uh, is, 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 is coming back, folks. Uh, and that's because uh, our third Mike is a past guest, and I think uh, safe to say friend of the show at this point. It's Alex Shepard of the New Republic. Alex, welcome back. It's great to be with you both again. Now, Alex, you wrote the cover story uh, for this month's issue of the New Republic, and uh, that's why we wanted to have you on. Uh, it's a cover story about Tucker Carlson. I have to say I've read quite a lot about Tucker Carlson, and I found your piece uh, very interesting. I thought it kind of uh, managed to get around some of the things that uh, have kind of slightly irritated me about, uh, you know, past profiles of Tucker Carlson. Um, There's a lot in the piece. Uh, There's a lot to kind of unpack. Um, But I thought maybe a good place to begin might just be uh, kind of at the chronological beginning of your story, um, which is kind of Carlson's, uh, you know, early days uh, as a as a campus conservative and kind of aspiring figure in the conservative media, because, you know, a lot of people, I think, probably don't know much about his trajectory before about, I don't know, 2012 or 2013. Um, They don't realize, for example, that he was on MSNBC. They don't realize that there are all these kind of different incarnations of Carlson, um, so where does where does his story uh, as kind of a figure in the right wing media begin? It's interesting because he is your sort of standard Republican magazine writer from the 1990s. So he uh, his father is a kind of um, uh, bombastic uh, newsman in San Diego, famous for doing these kind of big, juicy scoops, but also of like he outed to trans people at the same time. So there's a kind of Ron Burgundy element, I think, to him, but also he is just as loathsome as his son. Uh, and then his father, his mother leaves him when they're a kid and his uh, dad remarries to uh, this woman who is the heir of the Swanson frozen TV dinner thing. And I think that that or fortune and that pushes the Carlson family into a new income echelon and he gets to uh, go to fancy boarding school. And I think it was at fancy boarding school that really the Tucker identity kind of take shape. So there, that's where he starts wearing bow ties. He meets his uh, future wife there, who is the daughter of the headmistress. But mostly what he does is he becomes a debate club nerd and he spends all of his time debating people about everything. And he does things like literally like stand up and challenge all of the faculty members to debate him uh, on any subject. Uh, and basically that identity, I think, sticks with him. He goes uh, to Trinity College, a smaller school where he says he mostly was just drunk. He's kind of a fratty guy. We learned recently that he claimed to be a member of the Dan White Society in his yearbook. And also, I think, the Jesse Helms Foundation. Um, and, you know, he's just this is 
I think part of what the conservative movement post Nixon is like, right. You know, if you've read the Pearlstein books or whatever, there are all these loathsome little worms who have glommed on to the Nixon campaign. And Carlson is in some ways following in the footsteps of people like Roger Stone. Um, but when it comes time for him to get a job, you know, where he goes is he, he wants to be seen as being a smart guy. So he becomes a fancy magazine writer. He kicks around for a little bit, but when the weekly standard launches, uh, he's right there. And I think one of the most interesting things to me that he said in a 19, a very glowing Washington Post profile in 1999 was something like, you know, I thought about going to work at the American Spectator, but then, um, you know, people would have thought that I was a wingnut. So instead, I went to the Weekly Standard because I wanted people to take me seriously. I was interested in what you wrote about some of his late 90s, early 2000s journalism. He comes across in that period as sort of sort of a reactionary wit like sort of a Tom Wolf type writing these amusing takedowns of people like James Carville. Uh, the article is called uh, How Tucker Carlson Lost It. To what extent, I mean, the affect of him has obviously changed, but to what extent are kind of the kernels of his present ideology in that uh you know, magazine work that was being published by Esquire and the New York Times magazine. I, th- I mean, I think actually quite a bit because one of the things that you get, I mean, I think in his magazine writing, much of which is actually quite, it's pretty good. It's quite, some of it's very good, the Carvel piece in particular, but what you get is a picture of somebody who one, I think loves Chris Hitchens and Hunter S. Thompson, but also sees himself as this kind of uh, bomb thrower. He's smarter than everybody else. And he wants to like take down ripe targets. And I think people in DC, particularly when you talk to older people who are, you know, going to cocktail parties at the time, they loved this kid because he would go, you know, they would all whine about, Oh, James Carville, you know, what a craven check casher, you know, Oh, Al Sharpton, what a phony. And they wouldn't do anything about it. And Tucker would go and sort of skewer them and say, like, look at this guy. But what he cares most about is hypocrisy, is showing that, okay, these people who claim, they, you know, James Carville goes on TV and shouts about, you know, how the witch hunt against Bill Clinton or whatever, but, you know, him and his wife don't care about any of that stuff. Um, and, you know, there is a lot of ideology in the Weekly Standard reporting in particular, but he's not interested in it. What he's interested in is showing people that, the sort of liberals and some conservatives who run the country actually don't believe anything. Uh, And I think it's actually like psychologically kind of revealing because it's, it's, I think the thing that's what excites him because he, I think at heart is actually somebody who doesn't believe in anything. And there's something about knowing that there's something about knowing that these, these moral leaders and role models don't believe anything that's sort of liberatory for the reader. It's kind of like, well, if they don't believe anything, I, I don't have to believe anything either. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that, I mean, I think there's been a lot of really good, I mean, there's so much writing about Tucker, but I think one of the mistakes that people make is, is over inflating him as an ideologue or even as I think an important force. And, uh, and, you know, I think you, people like to graft things on to try to, uh, to try to, I think, take him down. But I think really what, what for, I mean, I've read, I think, almost every single thing that he wrote between 1993 and 2016 for this piece. And I think what, you know, is revealed there is not necessarily the workings of this kind of like hyper cynical, like master puppeteer. I think what you get instead is a guy who's essentially like a huckster, you know, he 
um, what he wanted to be was at the center of attention and he would do whatever it, it took uh, to get there. But, you know, ideologically, and I think now, you know, what he's doing is, is quite disgusting, but the actual, well, I think what it actually shows too is uh, the unmooring of conservative media in the same period in which, you know, essentially there is no ideological focus anymore. What you get instead is what Carlson is really good at, which is creating shiny culture war objects for people to graft attention onto. And, you know, the rest of conservative ideology can kind of sort of sneak in under the radar while you're doing that. Well, I have, I have a very specific follow-up to that, but I did want to interject to say uh, something, something I was thinking about recently, um, which, which came up again uh, reading your piece, but, uh, you know, every single election that happens in Canada, there's always a conservative candidate somewhere or multiple conservative candidates uh, who comes from the sort of campus conservative milieu. And I don't think I'd actually, I mean, it's very, uh, you know, given how much I've thought about Carlson, I'm kind of surprised that, uh, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't really had this thought before, but oh, very clear that the sort of campus conservative ethos is a big part of his, um, you know, shtick as well. And that he kind of, you know, come, comes out of that whole uh, sort of owning the libs tradition, you know, debate me, that kind of stuff. It, it strikes me that, uh, um, you know, there's so much talk about how the ethos of, you know, ultra woke uh, college students has kind of, you know, spread into the culture at, at large. And, you know, in, in some in some respects, there might be uh, something to that. But I feel like it's really elided how influential uh, the ethos of campus conservatism is on the right. I mean, obviously, the right wing media ecosystem, uh, you know, which is very powerful uh, does not have as much cultural influence as a whole, I would argue, as as the liberal media ecosystem. But within that uh, right wing ecosystem, you know, campus conservatism and and this shtick that that you've identified, Alex, you know, this sort of, uh, you know, yeah, owning the libs, debate me, uh, all that kind of stuff. You know, uh, a, a kind of preference for provocation over a specific ideological project. I mean, that just runs through, I mean, that ethos has entirely consumed the right. And in some ways, you know, Trump himself is a, is a manifestation of, uh, of that sort of thing. Um, but my follow-up question actually was going to be uh, about uh, Carlson's tenure at the Weekly Standard, because, you know, you mentioned his 1996 profile of James Carville, um, and I had no idea that exists, uh, that existed. So I set out immediately to find that. I stopped reading your piece and I thought, I'm not going to go on until I've read the 1996 Tucker Carlson hit piece on James Carville. Wow. Horseshoe theory is real. folks. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Now, but if, but uh, if you, uh, if you try to find the piece uh, you, which, you know, it's linked to uh, in your article, you get uh, taken to a kind of web 1.0 page. You know, it, it looks like if you ever visited the space jam website, or like, you know, or is it the, the, I think, the dole camp? Yeah. The, <laughs> dole, 96. dole camp 96. Uh, I guess dates from dates from exactly the same year. It, it looks like that. Um, but the Weekly Standard, which of course is now defunct, I guess has all of its articles saved in a kind of digital uh, bunker, know, a digital bunker. Yeah. You know, the right wing equivalent of the Giza pyramid complex, where you can go and mine all your favorite, you know, 1990s uh, conservative polemics. But would you believe I'm not a subscriber to that and was unable to uh, read it? So. What 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 more can you tell us about this piece? I I was pretty fascinated to hear it existed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of it's a fascinating piece because basically what it's called the populist plutocrat, which is a great 
a great title, but is basically laying out this idea. Okay, so James Carville, he goes on TV and he plays this uh, folksy guy from the bayou and he wears his LSU hat and he's a real man of the people and he you know knows how to win elections because he really gets like the common man when in fact he's a phony he lives in a you know 48 room house in northern virginia with his wife who does the exact same job as he does but who is a republican he's basically an alcoholic he's drunk all the time and is you know just you know devouring cigars and brandy and fine wine and, you know, what you what you get is this idea that this guy plays the role of being a political expert He on TV. It's good for TV and it's good for the Clintons to have this guy who can go on and claim to be like, you know, he's not George Stephanopoulos. Right. Like he looks like a turtle and he talks funny uh, and gives, I think, this kind of working class or southern working class. Uh, which is very important in America, particularly at that time, credibility to, you know, government that doesn't actually care about any of those things. And once you start talking to Carville, what you realize is that he is actually a fancy rich guy who doesn't care about any of this stuff either. And, you know, it's a, it's a really funny piece. Um, I think that's the thing that like gets you because I think the, at this point, Carville's or uh, Carlson's real like gift is for essentially like being like, look at this shit. You know what I mean? Can you believe this guy? This guy, like we're all hanging on this guy's every word about this stuff. And he doesn't mean any of it. Um, you know, and I think hanging above this is the idea that Tucker is somebody who kind of uniquely sees through this kind of bullshit, which becomes his like whole cable news persona. But at this point, he's still trying to be a magazine writer. So it's, it's done with, I think, a kind of deafness and irony that eventually gets completely pulverized by the demands of making cable news. And, and you mentioned uh, that there's, uh, in, in, in your piece, that there's even a, you know, you detected a, a whiff of sympathy or kind of game recognizes game, uh, kind of, um, I don't know, kind of intra-elite affinity perhaps between Carlson and Carville. Yeah, I mean, I think that what Carlson recognizes is a fellow traveler, ultimately, that this is somebody who, like him, kind of could be completely different. Like, you know, he just happens to play for the blue team and Tucker's on the red team. And they, you know, eventually work together on Crossfire. And, you know, one of the things that I found working on this piece is, you know, I talked to a lot of people that knew Tucker socially and some people who worked with him, some on the record, most off, but... You know, I think a lot of these people still, and I, you know, I can't say because Carvel didn't respond when I asked him to speak out. And I think some people just don't want to talk about Tucker Carlson once because if they do, then they'll be asked to do it a million times. But I think that, you know, a lot of these guys are just that, right? They're craving check cashers. They all still like each other. And I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, they all, or many of them still hang out. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who are like, you know, absolutely disgusted with what, Tucker has become, but yeah, I think the, the standard issue here is like, they know Carville knows that he's playing a role and so does Carlson. And I think that recognition, I think is the most interesting thing in that piece. And he fleshes it out actually in his memoir, which came out in 2003, a little where he, you know, says, well, I killed this guy in this piece, but actually like, I really, I really liked him like, you know, cause he's fun and he makes good TV and that's all I care about. 
Alex, if the ice cream man is still out there, please get me like a fudge sundae just when you get a chance. Uh, yeah, I, I don't I don't know if that came through to those listening, but uh, I actually thought that was at our end. Uh, so disappointed that there's no ice cream in store after uh, after we finished. It's pouring um, rain here too. <laughs> but he, he transitioned pretty quickly from the magazine work to being in television. You write that he he adopted the persona of the blue blood country, country club Republican. How much of that was in his magazine persona and how much of that is still visible in his current persona, whatever that is? That's a great question. I mean, in the magazine world, I and mean, he was always essentially, you know, he was never presenting himself the way he does now as this kind of like man of the people. Or I think, you know, his the best version or the most effective version of his persona is not that dissimilar to Trump's 2015 sort of 2016 thing of being like, I was one of these people and I know like how they're screwing you because of my connections. But mostly, you know, you can tell it's just someone who just wanted to be taken very seriously as a smart guy. Um, and the bow tie thing, I think goes back to that kind of campus conservatism thing that we were talking earlier. It's like his uniform to show you who he, like what kind of guy he is and who he cares about. And like, like the Tom guy, Wolf's white suit. Yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like that. I think, you know, Wolf is somebody who I think he also, he has a lot of similarities with later. I mean, he never wrote his version of electric Kool-Aid acid test, but he has some similarities to later Wolf stuff in that nineties work. But, you know, I think that, the bow tie, the khakis, the whatever checkered Oxford shirts, these things are showing you who Tucker actually cares about. And he's never, I quote in this piece, uh, his first weekly standard piece is about the kind of free Mumia people. And who he, so he goes and calls all these celebrities who had basically been advocating for um, uh, Mumia to be freed and, basically none of them know what they're talking about. And he gets to say, well, I, I called them and I said, do you know what Philly move actually stands for and what they did and, or, you know, or whatever, all this other stuff. The That's like his version of radical chic. Yes, exactly. And, you know, he's like, oh, the guy from Ben and Jerry's doesn't actually know about, you know, what Mumia Abu Jamal is accused of doing, doesn't know anything about move. And that I think is where that persona kind of clicks most clearly is that, he goes and finds social justice stuff in particular and says, well, these white liberals claim to care about this stuff. But when I quiz them on it with my like smart guy knowledge and show them that these guys are in fact thugs, like they don't have anything to offer. And, you know, it's never, he was never a guy. There's some stuff about whatever top marginal tax rates and other things, but mostly what he, I think what gets his goat is the post civil rights turn of people saying, you know, we need to sympathize with the plight of minorities in America. And, uh, you know, he, his magazine career, even when he's writing for places like Esquire, there's always a sense of actually like this post-civil rights turn towards this kind of journalism is, is inherently hypocritical and it's phony because people don't actually care about it. It's funny. I mean, this article, the article you wrote, uh, tracks a certain evolution in right-wing uh, media style, you know, away from, I guess, the the blue blood country club Republican persona. But I guess also 
there is still a great appetite on the right for a certain kind of persona, the, the, the smart, the smart guy who can epically own you while wearing a bow tie persona, like Ben Shapiro is one of the other great practitioners of this style of the time. But like in that, in that persona, like what has, what has, even though that persona exists, what has changed in it since the nineties, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think the big difference is a hardening of Tucker's like basic outlook. And I think there's a kind of, and I think that happens. I mean, the crossfire thing is its own. Um, there's an entire episode about that, which is, I think, very cringy now. Um, but that moment, I think, really kind of altered Tucker's career because for up until 2004, when that happened, he was really happy go lucky. So he's, I think he's 35 in 2004, but he's like, he's like, my star is rising. You know, I'm going to host a big TV show. I'm going to be a fancy, smart guy. And, and really, this is, and 2004 is the year I think you're alluding to of the famous John Stewart appearance on Crossfire that for a time at least destroyed his career. Yes. Yeah. And I, and did, I mean, it essentially destroyed his career for between five and 10 years, depending on if who you talk to. A, um, a, rare, a rare example in the sort of, uh, you know, someone getting owned on the news that actually had a real world impact, arguably. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really like the first kind of viral, like properly viral moment. Um, like I remember showing, like calling my dad down to our basement to watch it when I was ninth grade or something. It, it is hilarious. Um, I mean, we've talked about that clip and that moment and kind of identifies <laughs> a lot on the show, as you could imagine. But it is amazing if you, you know, kind of if you revisit it, uh, how cringy much of it is. Um, and actually, I, I, I think a hidden gem in it, you know, you're mentioning, Alex, about how, you know, Part of Carlson's thing is that he'll eviscerate a figure like Carville, but he also kind of likes him or, you know, he's probably, you know, maybe maybe he'll go after people and then he's able to, you know, uh, have a drink with them at the bar after or something. And there's something he says in the Crossfire interview that I think is ex extraordinary. And it's always stood out to me where, um, you know, somebody maybe it's the other host asks him to say something nice about John Kerry. Uh, and then he, he replies uh, to the effect that, you know, he says something like, uh, I like John Kerry. I care about John Kerry. Uh, and I don't even know what to do with that. I just think it's very funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I think I mean, I read about this in this, this piece. Like, I think that entire episode is extremely embarrassing and was really bad for just about everybody involved. And I think when you look at what John Stewart has done since and his most recent film in particular that's you a big see word very, for it but yeah <laughs> yeah i just do that only to trigger you will um <laughs> uh i think you know the legacy of it is very different but one of the things that was that's kind of shocking to me in that moment and there's the times article about it at the time is like john stewart is actually like really pissed about this and he is convinced that crossfire is ruining america which is i think kind of hilarious a hilarious thing to say in 2000 and what given what else is happening in the world in 2004 um but that really i think showcases carlson's insincerity and his the idea behind him this entire time was he was the guy who was speaking he was literally the mouthpiece for like conservatives and the republican party and and i think you know there was a kind of deep in this inauthenticity there that was exposed and you see, and I think that was also partly what made him a good magazine writer. Cause he could actually go 
up to people and kind of get them to trust him or like him. And his fratty side was part of that too. He's very loose. Like there's a very famous talk magazine article that he wrote or profile of George W. Bush that he wrote in which he kind of captures Bush uh, mocking a disabled woman that he had just ordered to be executed. And it's really disgusting, but, but I actually wrote this. I don't think, I think it got cut, but the thing that really stands out about it when you read that piece is you're like, oh, George W. Bush is trying to impress Tucker Carlson. He thinks that saying that, you know, literally, he literally um, is vocalizing what she's saying, you know, please don't kill me. You know, he says, uh, Bush says to Carlson, you know, imitating this woman. And it's clear that he's like, this little twerp is into this stuff, you know? Um, and, you know, that's partly the campus conservative thing, but but yeah, I think also, that, there's, that there's something there's something in that story as well that I think is really important and a really marked uh, point of contrast between the way right me- right wing media functions and the way that liberal or democratic <coughs> aligned media functions because it's always struck me that you know the media ecosystem on the right I think tends to set the terms for the Republican Party uh, in a very real way. You know, there are these famous instances of, you know, Republican members of Congress that like ran afoul of Rush Limbaugh or something. Mm -hmm. It went off script and they had to go on his show to apologize and genuflect because, you know, Limbaugh, this, you know, radio demagogue, um, you know, he had his he had his finger on the pulse of the Republican base. And, you know, he uh, you know, he was able to kind of uh, channel them and also kind of guide them in some ways. Um, and, you know, in this uh, and, in, you know, in, in the example you're giving, uh, Bush is trying to impress Tucker Carlson. I don't think you see the same thing uh, when it comes to liberal or Democratic aligned media. Republican media, whatever you might say about how kind of ideologically rudderless it is, how it kind of leans into reflexive contrarianism and, you know, um, provocation for provocation's sake, whatever. I mean, it is you know, and, and this is a fact liberals themselves acknowledge, you know, right-wing media has been very effective in pulling American poli- politics to the right. I don't think you can say the same um, about democratic or liberal aligned media. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 the first thing that pops into my head is, you know, I think about Marcos Melitsis, uh bringing like whatever it was, was it 50,000 roses? Perhaps I'm exaggerating the quantity of roses to Nancy Pelosi you know, that kind of thing that something like that, I think much more characterizes the relationship um, that that exists between, you know, the, the liberal media ecosystem and, and liberal politicians. It much more works kind of um, in, in, in the other direction. Yeah, I mean, there's also, I think, a related phenomenon, which is that there's no equivalent of. So Tucker is working at the Weekly Standard, but while he's before he gets his TV show, while he's doing that, he's writing for the New York Times Magazine. He's writing for Esquire. Later, he's writing for New York Magazine. Um, much later, he writes for the New Republic, too. And there's no real liberal equivalent of that. I mean, you would certainly never have a liberal writing for the Weekly Standard about it. But what you get is, and it's it's very clear, is that they're just editors at places that were like, well, we need a smart conservative to explain what like is actually happening with George W. Bush or, or like the Esquire piece, which is where he goes to Liberia with Al Sharpton, among other people. Or what we want to do is send this smart conservative into a place 
where we can we can show what they're thinking. And it's a strange thing for Carlson, who, you know, has basically lived in you know, he's a rich kid, rich snobby kid who's, you know, lived in DC and worked in these kind of elite magazine circles his whole life. But for whatever reason, he's the guy that gets parachuted into all these these situations. Not and not just he's doing he's writing for the weekly standard. He's appearing on Crossfire as the Republican guy while this is happening. But, um, but, you know, he's doing this for, you know, prestige uh, magazines. And I think that that's actually really important because he is, you know, when people wanted to find the totem or the voice of the, the new right, the young right, they went to Tucker Carlson. This is, I think, uh, a second really important point of contrast uh, between the liberal media ecosystem and the, and the conservative one. Um, you know, you just observed Alex that, you know, you wouldn't see, a liberal Tucker Carlson, whatever that would be, you know, writing for the Weekly Standard, writing for the Federalist, writing for the National Review, something like that. You see it the other way all the time, right? The the op-ed sections of, of major liberal-leaning newspapers have plenty of conservatives in them. Um, and, you know, that's just another feature of kind of liberalism that makes it distinct from, from conservatism that, you know, liberals uh, have really, I feel like, given... Uh, I mean, they've given a, a big platform to these kind of right wing public intellectuals whose job is to kind of make legible and respectable conservatism to a primarily liberal audience and, and readership. And I don't really know of an equivalent of that in the in the other direction. I think I think that's a big part of the story of the uh, conservative uh, revolt insofar as there was one against Donald Trump in 2015 and 2016. Um, a lot of the people you know, and there, there might be exceptions to this, but I think a lot of the figures who became the, the never Trump conservative, I mean, were people who had existed, um, you know, at kind of this nexus between liberal and conservative media where their job was to uh, cater. I mean, they were conservatives, but their job was to cater to a primarily liberal readership. And so given the reaction of American liberalism to Donald Trump, um, you know, a lot of them were not going to, uh, you know, we're not going to give, you know, give that up. And some of them, I mean, are effectively just, you know, a lot of the, the neocons in particular are effectively just kind of Democrats now. Yeah, I think that's like one of the big um, ideological shifts I was trying to capture in this. And I think the, the tricky needle to thread when you're talking about right wing media in America is that it's not like it's gotten like significantly worse. It's always really, really terrible, but I think it, it has gotten is very different than what it used to be. And I think one of the biggest differences is in what you're just describing that there used to be a much larger and more sophisticated network of laundering a lot of these uh, talking points. And, um, and I think either making them respectable via things like Tucker writing for, the New York Times Magazine, but I think also of situating them within a larger intellectual project. Uh, and what you've seen, I think, and Tucker's career, I think really neatly tracks this is this, this slow stripping away of, of all of that other stuff. And what you're left with, I think, is what has been the core for quite some time now, which is this kind of extraordinarily reactionary, um, very, very narrow, like just in, almost entirely about owning the libs plus I think a sense of racial solidarity and you know that those elements are in Tucker's work almost from the very beginning but there's a bunch of other stuff swirling around at the same time and 
you know, it's not really until the last 10 years that I think that really started, that engine really starts to turn and you get, I think you end up getting the, the Tucker that we see now. So presently he gets something like 3 million viewers a night on Fox News. He's by a significant margin, the most popular personality on Fox News, more so even than Sean Hannity. Well, po- most popular voice on cable on cable TV. on yeah. cable news. Yeah, why is he more popular than Sean Hannity? What is it about him? I mean, it's a it's a tough ish. It's a tough question to. I mean, part of it is you're just like, have you watched Sean Hannity recently? Um, but I think one of the other things that's changed is I think with Ailes gone. You know, the Fox, the Fox's connection to the Republican Party is much different than what it used to be. So the Fox late night used to be much more, I think, kind of raw, raw for like supporting Republican. They were very much like a team player within this kind of larger orbit. And I think Tucker has stored. I mean, the Republican Party is very much different, but there's not that same sense of discipline now. And what Tucker, I think, does and more than anyone else is he's not a f- I guess this is going to sound like a compliment, but he's not a follower. Like he's, he does cover stuff that other thing, other shows on Fox do not cover. Some of those things are not awful. They're like, you know, corporate power stuff, usually in some weird way, but most of them are, are like incredibly minute. And they're just like, this school board is fighting over, you know, this fighting over wearing a mask. This journalist complained that people were being mean to her. And what he's really good at doing is creating, I think, a a larger narrative. And that narrative is one in which there are people who are in charge of this country and they hate you and they look down on you and they're stealing from you and uh, and they want to, like, change your life in all these ways. And like, if you want to figure out if you want to find out every evening what they're doing to you, then you have to tune into Tucker, whereas you know, if you go to Hannity in particular, or even Laura Ingram to a lesser extent, what you, a lot of what you get is, you know, the standard kind of conservative talking points. What did Donald Trump do today? You know, what, from what did Ron DeSantis say today? Tucker does some of that, but also, you know, he is a much, I think, on the one hand, it's a much wider look. So you have people like Glenn Greenwald and other people who go on his show who don't go on any other Fox, Fox shows at all. And I think he's very, uh, clever in like who he chooses his, his quote unquote liberal liberal foils um, uh, and you know I think and the other element of it is this kind of there's a real sense of uh, apocalypse on that show that like if you are someone who has been you know has been put into this permanent sense of emergency via right wing media like the main line hit comes from Tucker. There's a there's a semi-popular like contrarian take that you hear sometimes that Tucker Carlson is somehow an anti-imperialist, that he is to the left of the Democratic Party on uh, issues like endless war or that sort of thing. Uh, to, to what extent is that true? It's not true. I mean, I think it's like the Trump thing where what these people want to do is to, yeah, they want to take the military out of Afghanistan so they can put it in American streets, right? They <laughs> want to take the military out of various places so we can go to war against China, right? So it's not, the idea most of the time is that we're not, we have this huge military and we're not using it effectively enough, that we're handcuffed, that, um, and I think that that's part of this as well is, I think it's very, you know, Tucker is very much a post, 
9-11 figure and that he does give voice to this idea that, you know, America used to be tough and we used to win wars and like we used to bomb people the right way. Whereas now, um, you know, it's all we all have we have to go through woke uh, protocols to ensure that we don't, you know, accidentally drone strike, uh, for instance, a car carrying seven children. Or yeah, good, good thing that never happens when woke <laughs> Democrats are to my right. Um, yeah, exactly. Alex, there's a there's a really interesting incident that you recount in your in your piece. Um, you know, there's kind of a, an interesting uh, professional interregnum for Carlson between the crossfire episode um, and kind of the Fox News incarnation of him that 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 you know, most people know today. Um, and you begin the piece with this anecdote. He's giving a speech uh, at the 2009 Conservative Political Action Conference. Um, and you know, he's in the midst of a bit of an identity crisis. Uh, he's starting the Daily Caller. Um, and hilariously, he, he tells this audience um, that, that you know, conservative, conservative media needs to be very fact-based and he, you know, even points to, you know, if you look at the New York Times, uh, you know, sure, they have a, you know, they're, they're, they, they lean liberal, but, you know, they're interested in telling people things that are true. And he actually gets booed for this. Um, but this initially is the model the Daily Caller takes up. So what, what was his thinking uh, with this experiment and what happened with it? Yeah, I mean, he you know, he tried to build up a, a real newsroom. Like, I think almost anyone I know who was in D.C. at the time who was vaguely conservative or libertarian leaning and who is a real journalist was uh, was basically, you know, either invited to apply or asked out for coffee or I guess Tucker was sober at this point, so coffee or dinner or something. Um, and what he yeah, what he's trying to do and you hear this every few years, particularly in the Trump era, you'd hear it a lot. This idea that, OK, well, there's this kind of wingnut conservative media. There's the talk radio shit stuff. There's um, there's whatever passes for news on Fox. And if Republicans want to get serious, they want to win elections. What they really need to invest in is reporting because liberals are good at reporting. And that reporting ends up helping them win elections. The Times, the most you know important media outlet in the country and we need to build a republican new york times so we can annoy democrats it's so it's so funny how lib that analysis is because because you know you see that kind of thing all the time from liberals like if we just had a better fact-checking apparatus then people wouldn't have been fooled by those memes of a muscly bernie sanders they briefly saw on their uh, you know, computer screen in, in like November of 2016 that made Donald Trump win. You know, if only if only those had come with a tag saying uh, yeah. this isn't a real picture of Bernie Sanders, then Trump would never have taken Wisconsin. Uh, it's but it's it's so it's that analysis is so alien um, to the right today. Uh, it's very yeah. interesting. Well, I think one of the things that is interesting about it is also that, Carl, this is happening in the very beginning of the Obama presidency. Uh, and I think Tucker more or less correctly is just like, this guy's getting a pass and a bunch of stuff. Right. And if we had real investigative reporting apparatuses on the, on the right, we could kind of rush into this vacuum and, you know, the best, and again, it's still true. The best thing to do is not to comment on the news is to make it right. To set the agenda. Uh, and, and they try it and it doesn't work. It doesn't work for a lot of reasons. I think one is just that they didn't have the actual reporting half to do it. And they were trying to compete. You know, the Times did still have people who were investigating the Obama administration or whatever. I think the, there was this idea that 
there were, you know, the scandals that had plagued the Bush administration were all, you know, happening within the Obama administration. They just needed to be uncovered. But the big reason is that conservatives don't care about that stuff at all. Like they want news that is tailor-made to fit an existing narrative. And so very quickly what happens at the caller is that it kind of reorients itself. And I think, you know, there is still some reporting that happens there, but mostly what they do is they become a kind of outrage machine. They make the sort of sausage. They do fake kind of James O'Keefe um, news hits a lot. They kind of get in trouble for um, stuff about media matters and, uh, and Robert Menendez among among other people, but mostly what they're good at is there, I mean, it's a proto, I think Carlson in some ways is a proto Ben Shapiro. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it resembles a lot of what becomes things like, you know, Shapiro's daily wire. It's all this kind of very narrow, um, very like hopped up, but mostly false um, attempt at, you're just kind of spinning everything that's happening under the guise of correcting the bias in the uh, American news media. And there was also stuff you point out in the piece that was completely apolitical. Like one of the things that they, they they would have these posts where it was just, you know, a picture from Emily Ratajkowski's Instagram, just embedded, like no political slant on at all. Just, Hey, look at this picture of Emily Ratajkowski. Was there something satiric about that? Like, like you hogs, you pigs, (laughs) this is, this is what the media has to be to survive. I mean, I feel like that would be more defensible. You know, I think it was, I mean, it, the smoke show stuff. I mean, really, I think Tucker, Tucker's great. And this, I think I cut from the piece, but his, uh, I think his, one of his great legacies will be like Barstool Sports, basically. And he, I think is, uh, I think that side of kind of quasi-political reactionary male stuff was like happening at the Daily Caller earlier than most other places. But yeah, so they, they basically had a smoke sh- a smoke show beat, so, which is actually Caitlin Collins, who is now one of CNN's big White House reporters and covered most of their election stuff. She started literally, I think she wrote that Emily Ratajkowski piece. She wrote this piece that was my favorite of the bunch, which is the let them in. These uh, Syrian refugees are seriously hot. Um, Yikes. And yeah. Uh, which is, is still like, oh, yeah, we hate immigrants uh, and Muslim immigrants in particular. But, you know, take a look at these ladies. Um, uh, and I think, you know, some of it was I think there was a kind of fraddish energy that always swirls around Tucker. I think some of it was that they just became obsessed with getting traffic because uh, especially, you know, the early 2010s, this is, the, this is when traffic was king um, and that stuff did work. But you know, it was deeply cynical. And I think also was still kind of part of this, um, this agenda of being like, well, we're, we can be real men. Like we can get our actual, like, uh, you know, red meat and, you know, women in bikinis, you know, while also selling you on, you know, why uh, the country will be broke in two years if Barack Obama gets reelected. There's something very kind of early playboy about that. You know, where it's like, well, we're we're intellectuals. We enjoy the finer things in life, uh, in, <laughs> yeah. in all spheres of life, including uh, including the opposite sex. Yeah, you know, I think it, it it's like similarly, like yeah, they're trying to cast, and and I think you see this much more in a much more defined way with Shapiro and Barstool and other people later. Is this idea there's a conservative lifestyle? You know, that it's not just 
it's not just your politics. It's not just closing the borders. It's not just making sure that, you know, if you make more than $1 billion a year, you're paying 8% taxes or something. Um, it's also that we want to provide you with a sense of a sense of identity. And that identity is like, you've got a big gun and um, you like, you know, racially insensitive um, pictures of Muslim women. Or you, eat, you eat steak every single day, like three times a day, that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Well, you know, uh, right-wing media still does, you know, uh, I mean, they still do, you know, the Daily Caller does do, uh, a kind of reporting, I guess you could say. And, you know, one of the features of the U.S. media ecosystem that has always particularly irritated me, and I'm, I'm not the originator of this idea, this is something lots of people have observed, but, you know, the fact is that if you want to read or just even see any, any attention given to scandals uh, afflicting, you know, powerful Democratic politicians, that's going to appear in the Daily Caller, it's going to appear in Breitbart, and vice versa, right? If you want to read about uh, what, you know, Donald Trump Jr.'s latest hijinks are or whatever, you know, you're going to go to, I don't know, uh, MSNBC or, or whatever. Um, uh, I, I experienced this myself uh, in 2020 when I was uh, trying to fact check some of Joe Biden's more outlandish claims. You know, he was saying a lot of things. Um, you know, I'm not going to run through all of them because we'd be here all day. But he was saying a lot of things that just were plainly not true. There were stories that were entirely made up. There was this whole this thing I wrote about where he um, uh, he claimed that he had been a university professor after leaving the vice presidency. Um, and the only place I could find this being mentioned anywhere was the Daily Caller. Um, there might have been one other outlet that mentioned it that was also a conservative outlet. I can't remember uh, which one. But, you know, uh, it's, it strikes me that to some extent, liberal and democratic media um, actually create a lot of opportunities for the right by not holding their own figures to account and by actually not uh, exercising basic kind of editorial standards around, you know, the things that they report on um, and how they report, report on them when, you know, they apply to liberal figures. And so, you know, if you're, uh, if you're a cable news viewer and uh, I don't know, perhaps you're somewhat more conservatively inclined culturally or whatever, it's like, what are you going to go with? Are you going to go with the, you know, the, the liberal outlets who in some cases anyway, obviously there are exceptions, but in some cases they're not covering uh, a story uh, or are you going to go with, you know, the kind of like, uh, you know, fun, angry, uh, you know, kind of charismatic, you know, cable news personality who tells you that the whole country is going to hell and, um, and that the elites are screwing or whatever, you know, there's a, uh, there's a very real and kind of uh, intuitive appeal to that narrative. And I feel like that gets overlooked sometimes when, uh, when people write about how the right wing media works and what its appeal is. And there's also, I think, a vicious cycle happening with that now as well, where I think news outlets have also are, have become very cognizant in the Trump era of how their stories about these types of figures actually impact the right wing news ecosystem. And that has actually, I think, made them very gun shy about your even more gun shy about covering um, Democratic officials. And I think, you know, it's you get into like real crazy town really quickly with this kind of stuff. But I think something like you know, Hunter Biden's art career or whatever. This is a pretty standard. And again, if it was Donald Trump Jr.'s art career, we would have a very different set of stories about it. But, you know, my my sense is that news outlets have sort of hesitated to 
go too far into it in part because of all the crazy Hunter Biden stuff that was out there before. But I think also because, you know, now they know, well, not, not only would the times be covering, for instance, like, which, I mean, they have to a small extent, um, the various, you know, ethical conflicts at play here, but that also that it would be on drudge, right? Times covers, uh, you know, Times says Hunter Biden art sales questionable, you know, it'd be on the Daily Caller, it would be an episode of Ben Shapiro's podcast. And I think that that has, has made them hesitant, I think, in, to hold uh, to hold them to account when it's not something like ending a war that we've been in for 20 years. Something like the 2004 crossfire appearance probably seems less important now than it did at the time. Um, so I want to ask, you know, Tucker Carlson, he's the most popular personality on cable news. How important is he really? And one reason I ask this is because in 2004, as you alluded to, Fox News functioned more as a kind of PR arm for the Republican Party than it seems to now. Like, has that unmooring made Tucker Carlson more important? And if so, like, how important? I mean, the, the, the question that interested me the most when I was working on this is to what extent is Tucker purposefully leading a conversation and to what extent is he kind of riding the tiger, right? Like, basically this... I think this kind of outrage machine had been, you know, had been set in motion a long time ago and is now like completely out of control and no one can really handle it. And I think, I think I'm going to be wishy-washy and answer the question in two ways. I think on the one hand, like he's very clearly the most important conservative voice in the country. I think, you know, I think people roll their eyes at the, uh, the ratings. And I think 3 million people in a country of whatever, 380 million people, 370 million is not that many, but, I think this is somebody who is setting, I think, the kind of agenda for and the mood of the Republican Party, not to be like it's the vibes, but he's setting the vibes of the Republican Party right now, more so than anyone else. And that very much includes Donald Trump, who I think is kind of lost. He'll probably get it back, but he's lost that kind of command. Um, but at the same time, one of the things that stood out as I had to endlessly watch his show I mean, really over the last two or three years is actually how kind of pathetic it is. Like, you know, there isn't, you know, there, this is somebody who, you know, his brother is named Buckley. He's named one of his kids Buckley. Um, oh man, that's so lame. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. It's very lame. Um, but, you know, this is somebody named who, my son Adolf Reed. So. <laughs> uh, I think there's something where you see in his early career, this desire to be the next kind of great conservative journalist and be this kind of impressive, like movement person and kind of transcend a lot of this stuff. And now the show itself is just, is purely reactive. It's entirely this game in which, well, like the left is getting a lot of attention by pointing out the, um, the you know structural racism in the country so my thing is now that actually the structural racism is against white people you know and you know people are saying that the vaccine is good and so well where do i go well it must be bad you know and i think you know i think carlson's ability to set the tone of things and it which has gotten significantly darker on the right um in in a mainstream way in the last 15 years is really important but the actual agenda setting is so small. Like, you know, he, you know, the, the sort of quasi populist turn post Trump, like he didn't do that. You know, he was, I think the person who exploited it most adroitly, but 
that's it. Like, you know, he's just kind of this to me, you know, and I think what I was trying to do in the piece is like, it's just this kind of wizard of Oz situation. Like he has this huge platform. We all are obsessed with him all the time. And yet the actual, like the actual result end result is, is just kind of like small and pathetic. I saw uh, this week, one of the things he was talking about was Nicki Minaj. Um, And I saw somebody on Twitter commented, you know, must be a a slow week for the culture war. (laughs) Um, And I I confess that a lot of the times when he comes up in my timeline, it's because of something like that, like some, you know, minutia kind of culture war issue. And it's very much just a sort of like conservative version of, you know, what you see in liberal media, which of course also obsesses over culture, you know, culture war minutia or whatever. I was watching a great clip this week. He had Jim Brewer on. Uh, Jim Brewer is a uh, mostly forgotten SNL cast member from the nineties. And he was, I just saw a great clip of Jim Brewer, like going off on an epic riff about how uh, he would he would cancel dates at any comedy club that required vaccination of its mm. customers and like and like you you can't you can't tell me what to do with my body you can't tell my god what I should do with my body you know that kind of thing uh, and and I know Jim Brewer not exactly not exactly the hottest guest you can get right now yeah I mean that I think that's the thing where you're like this is a guy who is like was trying to be like a he's a big fancy big shot he knew all the big fancy big shots in washington and now his show is him having jim brewer on and talking <laughs> about weird animal stuff all the time and there's something that to me is very funny about that that you know the guy from uh half baked or whatever is yeah. is now using this as a way i think mostly to just try to launder the fact that nobody actually wants to go see him perform comedy anymore. Those are the two routes for X SNL stars. You can become yes. Eddie Murphy or you can become a right wing crank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Jim Brewer did surprise me, but you know, I think the show itself, like that's, you know, he's good at, at sort of the, the one thing that you will say about him is that he, there is like, there's no, the bar, is so low like he'll do anything he'll make anything into a segment but as long as the ultimate point of it is like well the the guys who are in charge like they don't want you to see this they don't want you to know that you know snl star jim you know goat boy or whatever his thing was like they don't want you to know that goat boy is standing up for you um and you know you're like that's it's stupid like it ultimately is like very dumb and doesn't have to do with anything. I think the evil part of it is, you know, I think Carlson's own ideological positions are kind of hard to suss out. And I think in general, like he's just basically a reactionary and is somebody who, as we said, this kind of campus conservative, whatever the liberals are doing, I'm, um, I'm against it. Um, But I think the end result is, you know, the one thing that he does, I think, care deeply about is race, you know, or it's, or at the very least of this kind of hyper identitarian politics. And this, I think, obsessive focus on the culture war has been great for Republicans. It's kept Republicans really, really engaged. And nobody is better at doing that than Tucker Carlson. So, you know, the parsing the right is such a difficult exercise at the moment. Um, you see all kinds of things in relation to Carlson, in relation to figures like Josh Hawley, 
Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, I guess, suppose JD Vance most recently, there's a lot of discussion <laughs> of a sort of inchoate um, populist conservatism, or, you know, there was the, I guess they called it national conservatism when they kind of tried to launch it a few years ago, they had that big conference, which I think Carlson uh, spoke at. Um, and, you know, I have to say, I mean, cards on the table, I'm very, I'm very skeptical that this is anything other than a kind of rebrand of traditional conservatism. Um, you know, it, it seems to lean, as, as you've been saying, Alex, very heavily into kind of culture war stuff while, you know, occasionally uh, adopting, you know, a, a type of class rhetoric, let's not be too generous here, um, that that is maybe less traditional um, from from conservatives. But the thing that's the thing that's really difficult to figure out for me anyway is you know given the omnipresence of you know Trumpism and MAGAism on the right, and also um, you know something else you've you've observed, which is how reactive this whole thing has become, and how there's not so much a set of ideological objectives as just a series of reflexes at this point. I truly don't know what comes next, either for the right wing media ecosystem uh, or for, you know, the Republican project as a whole. Um, and I really don't know what comes next if somehow Donald Trump doesn't run in, in 2024. Um, I, I, it's hard to think of another example. I mean, it, I don't think there is an example in American history where a defeated president from a particular party has continued to remain uh, you know, the kind of uh, am ambient force of influence within uh, within uh, his party. I don't think that's ever happened before. So I feel like we're very much in uncharted waters here. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Grover Cleveland was elected to non-consecutive presidential terms in the Gilded Age, but I don't... The Clevelandism yeah. was... <laughs> was yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was the, the real force in late 19th century American politics. Uh, no, I mean, I think usually ex-presidents don't hang around in this way. I mean, I think one of the things that this whole whole thing underlines is there were a lot of people, and J.D. Vance was one of them in a very different way in 2015 and 2016, who, and Carlson was too, that recognized, okay, so Trump is onto something, but he doesn't know what it is, right? Because he's too stupid. And, and so there was this race to put meat on the bone of Trumpism, and it didn't work, right? Like, we don't actually know what that is. It's not coherent at all, in, in part because I think it can't be coherent because it's connected to Donald Trump. But the attempts to kind of intellectualize it to form this kind of ethos, like, you know, Carlson has a vague version of it, which is you're sort of opposed to corporate power, but in very specific instances when it usually deals with, like, this idea that, you know, technocrats and Palo Alto are suppressing the free speech of, you know, they're, they're crushing workers by making them do like an anti-racism seminar. Yeah, yes. But, yeah, exactly. But, but the wages are probably less the issue that kind yeah, of, yeah, the minimum wage should be lower, but also, you know, if you should be able to write the N word indiscriminately on Twitter or something. Um, and, you know, in foreign policy, there's efforts to do it, but it's just, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. There's not, I think, somebody where you can go to from a policy perspective and say, well, this is how Republicans govern. And I think you look at what Donald Trump did, right? And his crowning achievement was lowering the corporate tax rate, right? Like, that's it. I think that's, that in itself is, is pretty revealing. But, you know, I think instead, and I think what Tucker has recognized is that really it's just not about any policy at all, right? Like what the story that they're telling is one in which 
various liberals and elites are uh, are oppressing Americans everywhere and that we need to stand up for it in non-specified ways. And the only way to do that is to elect Republicans who will then lower the corporate tax rate, you know, to 15% or something. Well, this has been an incredibly uh, interesting and substantive discussion. So Alex, thanks for joining us to discuss your piece. Uh, Before we go though, uh, I did want to talk about a particular clip from Tucker Carlson, which I have to say uh, is something I, uh, I mean, I I watch it, I think every few months, there's something about (laughs) it that just, tickles me. I don't think anything else uh, could could quite so beautifully and sublimely encapsulate uh, the kind of sheer derangement of a lot of what's broadcast on cable news. I'm talking, of course, about uh, the famous Kurt Eichenwald appearance on Tucker Carlson. Um, I've got it in front of me here, uh, you know, bookmarked, of course. Uh, Tucker Carlson confronts Newsweek bias is the headline. Um, Alex, did you see this when it aired? Oh, yeah, I've watched it. Yeah, at least a half dozen times. <laughs> <laughs> so so for those who don't know the background here and, you know, don't worry, we're going to drop the clip in. we might send uh, send you all out with that. But the background here was that uh, Kurt Eichenwald, who I guess was a sort of. Uh, I mean, a, a journalist who'd, who'd been somewhat aligned with conservatism. I mean, I know during 2016, when he was a big resistance guy, he talked about voting for Bush and possibly Reagan as well in the past. He became a sort of leading figure in, uh, you know, the, you know, the, the resistance and kind of the resistance media. I would say uh, generously, he had a bit of a cavalier attitude about some of the claims he would make. Also a cavalier attitude about deleting some of his past search history. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you can just, you can just Google that. We don't need to expound on it too much. Um, but, uh, but so, you know, he, he basically made this claim uh, that Donald Trump had been admitted to a mental institution or something like that. And, uh, you know, challenged on this by Carlson, he filibusters for about 10 minutes. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this on TV before. It's extraordinary. The best thing is that he also, to try to come back at him, he claims that he is a, a binder full of all of uh, Tucker Carlson's, I think he says falsehoods, which bring, I also think is very it out. He's wielding it like a prop. He has a <laughs> binder that says, it's emblazoned with the words Tucker Carlson falsehoods it, on it. And it, it clearly is just like Kurt Eichenwald's medical records or something too. <laughs> There's no way that there are actual Tucker Carlson lies in it. But it is one. Well, Kurt Eichenwald also, we should note, uh, it wrote the book that the movie The Informant is based on, too. Um, really? I actually didn't yes. know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So he has a story credit for, um, yeah, movie I actually like quite a bit. But, <laughs> but he also, I mean, he also seems to have, there's a particular investigative reporter gene that I think makes a lot of people kind of go nuts once they hit 45 or 50 and are so convinced that basically everyone that, that people are out to get them or that any criticism that they receive is proof that they must be on the right track. And and also, also that absolutely everything is Watergate or the Kennedy assassination. (laughs) Everything they're investigating is one of those two things. The only two news events to ever matter. Well, it's also funny too, because I was, you're like, Kurt, in this, in his clip, he's so, uh, he's so intent on proving that Donald Trump was addicted. He had a prescription just for speed and that he served time in a mental institution. And you're like, 
this is in 1972. Like, what do you think this is going to accomplish by like, even if let's say both of those things are true or one of them, like what happened, you know, what happens then, you know, but instead you hit this insane thing where basically, I mean, it is, it's like the, it's peak resistance lib stuff where this guy who's just tweeting crazy stuff about Donald Trump all the time has to then like try to explain what it all means. And yeah, it's like he just shows, throws a binder around. Right. And, and, and he can't explain it and then therefore creates a huge opening for, you know, the kind of populist demagogues of the, of the right. Uh, folks, if you want a vision of the future, just imagine Kurt Eichenwald and Tucker Carlson uh, screaming over each other for, for all eternity. Should we, should we drop the whole 10 minutes? I mean, why not? Let's let's leave yeah. folks with that. Thanks for listening, everyone. <laughs> See you next time. We've shown you many examples of journalism veering outside the conventional lines on this show. But one Newsweek senior writer has made a name for himself this election season with an arsenal of florid headlines, especially florid ones. His name is Kurt Eichenwald, and he joins us now. Kurt, thanks all for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I've been reading your stuff for, I mean, 20 years probably. But in the last year, I've noticed an increasing, I think it's fair to say, partisan turn uh, from you. And so I looked up your bio and it describes you as a senior writer at Newsweek, which suggests journalism. Do you believe that you're practicing journalism? <laughs> when did you stop beating your wife? Uh, get, what are you talking about? Well, I'll, I'll show you what I'm talking about. I, I read your Twitter feed and this is uh, the kind of stuff I'm reading on it. At one point, uh, you ask of conservatives, why do they hate America? You describe Trump as, quote, stupid and lazy. You, you refer to dumbass Trumpers. You say this to Kellyanne Fitzpatrick. F you. You well, say hold, this to hold Trump on voters. Again. Hold Go on F here, yourself. Tucker. I mean, one of the things I want to make sure of, you that have a real habit of taking a lot of things out of context. I can read and the so tweets. And so if you're going to talk about a tweet, let's talk okay. about a tweet. Read me what it says, and we can talk about it. But sure. let's not just sit here and take a couple of words here and there. Now, if you're talking about the Okay, Do you, would you want me to read some of your tweets? Read me you one. Let's talk about the one that bothers you the most. Well, I mean, there are a lot. Um, and it's not that they bother me. But I can't, Actually, I can't I think answer you're, a question you're entirely, about a lot you're, of tweets. Give me an answer. You're entirely, Give me a question. Well, you're entirely entitled to your opinion. I, I just, my only point is that you ought to label yourself as what you are, which is an advocate. And so you say things like this. How can oh, Trumpsters okay, defend okay, a president Let's stop for a second. You won't I mean, I can, give me I've got an example. I'm trying to give okay, you one well, right then, now. Then give me here, Perfect. you know what? Let's play the game another way. I oh. spent a little while just sort of doing Wait, some no, research actually, on you. Let, why don't you answer? Let me, this you, let is me what ask I came you this question, with. if you Tucker would. Tucker Carlson falsehoods. <laughs> okay. And I can <laughs> sit here and I can read them to you one I at a time. I appreciate it. And right. we can talk about what you have to say. That's but pretty good. Or, let, let me, or let me, you can give me an example of what you're talking about. Well, I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. You wrote this okay. on September 12th of this year. You said, this is a tweet. I tweet so many attacks on our bad, lazy work of the press, I doubt I'll ever be voted to win a journalism award again, which is also a humble brag, by the way. But the next day, you say quite ironically, and I'm quoting, I believe Trump was institutionalized in a mental hospital for a nervous breakdown in 1990, which is why he won't release his medical records. Do you see a little irony that on one day you're criticizing the press for being lazy and inaccurate, and the next day you yourself are being <laughs> lazy add, and let inaccurate? Let me give you what the question is the journalist would ask. A journalist okay. would ask the question, why did you send that tweet? I will answer it for you now. I've been covering Donald Trump. I started writing about him in the late 1980s. At that time, I obtained his medical records from his real doctor, not from this guy right. who sent out a medical report then. 
It showed that in 1982, he was given a very heavy prescription for an amphetamine derivative, and he remained on that prescription for many years. I knew from people inside the Trump organization that uh, they were deeply concerned about his condition, that he was getting reckless, that he was getting um, impulsive, that he wasn't sleeping, that he was speaking with these sort of great variations of grandeur, that he could do anything. And uh, in 1990, because he did so many deals that were so reckless, uh, his whole empire was going into bankruptcy and he was going through a divorce and I was told that there was, and now let me say, I'm talking about reporting process. So I'm saying here is what I was told. Was he in a mental hospital or not in 1990? You alleged that he was. Was he or wasn't he? He wasn't. Can, was can, he? I, can I, I mean, Tucker, if you don't want me to answer the question, Tell I'm asking so, you the question, was he in a mental hospital on. in 1990 But I would like not. to answer the question. You've made an okay. accusation. Let me answer. No, I read your tweet. So in, in 1990, I was told that there was an, uh, essentially a breakdown. I'm giving reporting process here, okay? Clearly, I didn't print it. Uh, I also thought Trump was a private individual and that it didn't matter, you know. Well, you printed um, it right here. And, that as a, and this was as a result of the... Um, uh, amphetamine derivatives that he was taking. Um, many, many years pass, and we have now the election. Now, up until that point, prior this to the election, this is a very long story. You said that he was in a mental hospital in 1990. Was he or wasn't he? It's a really Tucker, simple question. I'm asking you If you don't like the answer, don't have guests. But I would really like to answer Kurt. your question. It's now, a simple question. Forward, was he in a mental many, hospital, many years. as you claimed, or wasn't he? Tucker. Would you like me to answer the question or okay. not? If the answer is no, say so. Please but succinctly don't answer the question. You You're want an answer with this if weirdness. you won't let okay. me answer the question. Kurt, we can go, go back and say, oh, here are Tucker Carlson's falsehoods. Let's go through them one okay. at a time. Kurt, I urge you. I will send these to you. You can put them right. on the Fox News website. Okay. Do you want me to go answer ahead. the question or not? Just give this me a yes or no. Do you want me to answer the question? Yeah, I want you to answer okay. this question. Was he in a mental hospital in 1990, as you alleged, Let or was he not? Let me answer the question. Go ahead. You are, look, you're not fooling anybody. You're trying to stop me from giving the answer. So let <laughs> okay, me give Kurt, you the answer. This is a little nutty. So, i got to be honest. I'm asking you okay, a very I also crisp noticed question. earlier this week you take people off the air when you don't like what they're saying. So okay, let's Kurt, keep I'm me on the air. Time. Let's finish this. Okay. You're making accusations okay. against me. You, I have the right to I'm respond. I'm reading what you wrote. Um, you, so, you described Trump as a, quote, paranoid, Tucker, unstable nobody man. nobody is getting fooled by this. You're not letting me answer the question. Okay. So I think let's that go you're humiliating to, yourself by uh, your unwillingness to it, answer a simple question. So please answer it. Last I am time. trying to answer the Do question. Do you have evidence he was in a mental hospital unlike on your world, you? reality is not always able to give you a yes or no answer. If you don't, <laughs> look how much time we are wasting with me trying to say, let me answer your question, and you refusing to allow you. me to do I it. I will go crazy. So okay. I will continue. All right. What happens then when we get to... Um, uh, I begin to see Trump's behavior got very normalized in the 2000s. During the presidential election, I begin to see the same behavior, the impulsiveness, the lack of sleep. I mean, that's the same thing this that he just, was this doing. This is just stupid, Kurt. I'm sorry. Nobody's getting anything the, out of this. The, I'm asking you a plain question. Other, You're not answering. You're filibustering. Let's move on to something else. Can, not, can you stop? Tucker, this is not interesting. No, Tucker, Let me ask. I am not allowing you to, ch to make an accusation and then I'm not, not making an accusation, Kurt. I'm, I'm, 
It asking is not you to substantiate a claim that you made. If you want to have a dialogue, don't have guests. So Can I just ask you one last question? question? And nobody's getting fooled. You're trying to How stop. can Newsweek employ so, you as a reporter, Kurt, when you're throwing <laughs> lines like this around that are untrue, that you can't substantiate, when you say to the president's Tucker, spokesman, you F not, you, well, you, that's not you, the behavior that, of a look, reporter. Okay, let's go here. Ah, let me take one for you. How can Fox <laughs> okay. News employ you? You really want to okay. do this? Do you really want to play this game? Or do you this want me to answer? Performance art. I've I never had an interview like this in my this life. On Newsweek com if you want. I can tweet it all out if you want. I'd all like right. you to put it up on the Fox News website. Or right. you can let me answer your question. I, I, I think you may, think I, may be coming on Dunkirk. How about Begging this? I'm going to give you 30 answer seconds to answer this question. Do you have evidence that he was institutionalized no, in a mental hospital in 1990? Still on 30 the seconds. Now, okay, I will say this, because it's a message I've got from people from the CIA. Uh, I know a lot of officers. I know a lot of agents. I've been in their homes, and they're really delivering this to you and to Donald Trump. Uh, these are people who have sacrificed a lot for this country. They What's go the through message? into the CIA every day. They walk past that wall with 117 stars. I get it. What's the message? Stars. You, if, if you're going to say that we can't talk about the fact that there are 117 patriots whose lives have been lost serving this country, that's fine. I have con right I'm starting to have concerns have about you, in, Kurt. Right now, tell me we what have the, the secret message from the CIA is. Who are putting their lives on the line who are to be sources of information for the CIA. That information is coming in. That information is then being put together by analysts who are uh, not well paid, and they do very hard work, and they do yeah. it because okay. they are patients. I'm sorry, we're, we're out of time, Kurt, and, and I don't mean this in a, in a cool way. I, I would have real concerns if liars, I were one of your editors, and I mean news. that. I'm not calling anyone a liar, but I am it's saying despicable. I'm concerned about your behavior on this show tonight. But thanks a lot for joining us. That's because you won't I, I let me answer your questions. I don't think <laughs> okay. anybody's fooled. Thanks a lot, Kurt. I appreciate it.